Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hansen-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product. And we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! Hi, uh, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am joined today by Liam Young, and I'm excited for you guys to meet Liam. Um, I actually met him after reaching out after using his service um, and found his business so interesting that I thought he would be great to come on to the show and share more of his story with you. Um, For those of you who don't know Liam Young, he is the founder of Harper, a retail technology startup that helps retailers to deliver the in-store experience that they would like to their online customers. And they do this by leveraging their network of style concierges who act like mobile sales associates for Harper's brand partners. They've now raised over $3 million and funding from a host of high-profile investors, including former CEOs of the likes of AO.com and Jimmy Choo, the technology director of LVMH and the MD of Farfetch. And they've onboarded big retail and luxury brands from Selfridges to Salvatore, Ferragamo, and more. Liam, thanks for joining us today. Where are you zooming in from? I am zooming in from West Hampstead. Very nice. And for anyone in London, uh, I'm in Hampstead, so we are actually way closer. We could have done this recording. <laughs> we could have done it in person. Um, but Liam, so as I said, I met you after actually using your service. I was purchasing from, for anyone in the UK um, and maybe France too, uh, from Me and M is the brand. And I had ordered some clothes from them. And I got this really nice pop-up option. Um, and it was from a partner technology called Harper. And they asked if I would like to have a style concierge actually come with my clothing delivery and um, give me any support on what I was buying and take my clothing away if I didn't end up keeping it. And I thought, wow, as a user, this is something that solves a lot of pain for me personally in London. I, I told you when we spoke afterwards that actually coming from America to the UK, one of the things that's been harder for me is I used to do a lot of online shopping and even just returns were challenging for me. Um, so I reached out to you because I thought this was so great and my experience with it was so great. I wanted to hear more about who had had this idea to solve a problem um, like this and hear how it was going. And that's how we we first spoke, right? Thank you for using it. I'm so glad you liked it. Absolutely. I think maybe what would be great, I mean, you've got a really interesting story um, in terms of when you decided that you wanted to look into this problem space. And uh, maybe you could take a step back and talk to us a little bit about who you were and did you look like the most likely person to be solving this problem? Uh, And tell us a bit of your journey. Well, absolutely not (laughs) to answer that question. Um, My background was in engineering. So I had studied mechanical engineering in Manchester. Um, I came down to London. I was only really doing that job for 18 months um, before I started Harper. I realized that I was working in a large multinational tech company, and I realized that that wasn't for me. Um, But I had the idea of Harper from from a customer perspective, kind of exactly the problems that you just mentioned there, actually, Um, you know, just it's a very it's a touch and feel product shopping for clothes. And the fact that you can't online just makes it so challenging. You know, it's a difficult decision. Um, Inevitably, you get it wrong sometimes. You know, I'm the type of customer who likes to try on quite a few pieces. I always had returns. 
They were just the most frustrating thing in the world to deal with. Um, there was one experience that just illustrates the point nicely. And it was, I placed a big order. I was really excited. I got home to work from work because it said it had been delivered to a safe place. Um, I arrived back, see the little red slip, always disappointing. Um, but knocking on my neighbor's doors, nobody's seen it. Calling up DHL, calling up the retailer who I won't name and shame. Uh, but nobody knew where it was. And all the retailer could say is it's with DHL. You're going to have to take it up with them, which again, isn't great service, but there's not really much they can do at that stage. Um, eventually, after half an hour of really looking for it, thinking I'd lost this, you know, I'd saved up for it. I'd made a big order, um, ultimately found it outside my home in one of my bins. So the delivery driver, again, they get paid per drop, had just put it in there. It's the only place they could find. So I fish it out of the bin. I don't even try it on. It's a completely broken experience at this point. Have to return it all. So salt in the wounds, I have to go and make time to return it all, send it all back. And again, I've just, I've never since actually shopped that retailer, um, quite a well-known retailer. Um, but it just made me realize actually that the experience is broken and that's not the experience the retailer wants you to have, but it's what you're subjected to today as a customer and thought there's just got to be a better way. Yeah. Well, as someone who clearly used your try before you buy service, um, uh, and liked it so much to reach out. I think you're onto something there. Um, but it's super interesting to hear that you've gone from like engineering and systems engineering to creating a, you know, e-com and uh, retail like technology solution. So maybe we can take a step back to <laughs> how you decided to do that because uh, not everybody uh, sees a problem or has a frustrating experience and decides that, hey, it's worth building a, pro a, pro a company dedicated to solving that problem. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you came to make that choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always think back and I think was any of my, <laughs> anything that I studied for, anything that I paid for that course for relevant. And I think the main thing was really just problem solving. Like I've always loved solving problems. And this was a problem that I faced. So I was constantly thinking of ways it could be done better. Um, like I said, I was I come from a, con a consumer pain point problem rather than the retailer industry insight problem. So I was really trying to solve it for people like myself and yourself first. Um, but I also knew how the kind of like logistics world worked and the more nuts and bolts. And I think that's where a lot of the kind of disconnect comes from. You have retailers in this fashion world and then you're selling online and you have to work with this logistics world. And they are, as I've come to learn, very different people. <laughs> So I was kind of sat quite nicely in the middle. So I understood the consumer problems. I was facing them myself, but I understood the logistics as well. Um, so I think that was just the kind of insight I had. There wasn't, you know, it's not like a, an area where there's a huge amount of experience and research. So what we've been doing is really inventing it from the ground up. Um, so how I came to that decision was just, again, having the idea, speaking to so many friends and family, um, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that happened bringing Harper to life, like trying to fundraise, which was a nightmare, which we can talk about. We might need longer than an hour, but um, yeah, that was the kind of core problem I was trying to solve for. Cool. Well, yeah, I think we definitely will want to go into getting the funds, uh, but clearly, I mean, it's been quite successful at this point. You've got, you know, we cited in the the entry uh, comments, you know, some really big brands and some really big names that have joined on the platform. And I know your, you know, kind of your key metrics, like your your appointment volumes have grown 4x year over year. So uh, it seems like things are working quite well at this point. But what I'd love to talk a little bit about is kind of some of the learnings you've had along the way, because I know that both um, from fundraising, but also through COVID coming, you've had a few hurdles that you faced and it's really shaped actually the business as it is today and as it seems to be thriving today. Um, so maybe we can take a step back. Tell us, you know, 
the the beginning um, from a fundraising perspective and how you went about that process and and maybe take us into some of how COVID impacted things as well. Yeah, COVID was a challenge. I think it was a challenge for everybody. Um, I'd say that was probably the hardest part of our journey. Um, we we would try, I'd say January 2020 through June 2020 was probably the hardest period, and there's been some hard periods. Um, there was one time that probably really illustrates the point for us. I was I was fundraising for a, you know, intimate at-home shopping experience during a global pandemic. And I met with one of our investors who was actually in a previous life, an ex-investment banker. And I met with him because he was a great person to brainstorm like fundraising strategy with. Um, I went to meet him in Mayfair. I'd met him there many times before. Everything seemed completely normal. This is January 2020 now. It was bustling. It was still busy. Um, he arrives, I stand up to shake his hand, and he just stares at it. And if that's ever happened to you, the first thing that goes through your head is, what have I done to offend him? Like, what have I said? Um, but he went on to explain to me that, you know, he had friends in China. And this pandemic we were starting to hear about was actually incredibly serious. And he basically told me he was scared. And he said he, he wasn't just scared about, you know, Harper being an early stage startup and one of his investments. He was, he was scared himself, and I'd never seen this from him before. So that's what really brought it to light. And I think that um, that feeling actually of, you know, having your hand out, trying to shake someone's hand for the next six months it, and nobody there to reciprocate was basically how it felt. It was a really challenging time. Um, but I think everybody had probably faced that. But I think the nature of the business and trying to raise money at that time was really, really tough. Yeah, I think um, at the time that we're recording this, we're, we're, of course, hearing a lot of negative news in the markets as well, right? A lot of layoffs in the tech space, um, a lot of, you know, fund events are dropping to extremely low levels, a lot of deals are falling out of the pipeline. Um, so today's recording will probably be quite uh, inspiring and helpful for anyone who is going through their own version of looking for that handshake right now and finding it uh, harder to get. So um, okay, so this investor, you're there, you're in Mayfair, um, and he starts to express concerns not only about his physical health, but also about the business based on the business model and the fact that you guys are going into what may be a quite disruptive um, health health pandemic, right? Yeah, I mean, it was it was terrifying, really, because I hadn't. Um, I think that was when I realized the gravity of it. Um, it took a while for it to land with a few people, didn't it? But I think him actually i think it was good that he landed it that way the point because we we moved really fast after that um we we put in safety measures way before the government did or, or, or made it mandatory um we changed the product so one of the things that really helped us is you know we could have gone from a position of doing you know good and growing business to doing zero business and trying to fundraise and i think if that was the case um that would have been a you know game over if i'm honest and what happened was the we we sat down as a team and we said, look, how can we kind of change this? How can we how can we adapt the service so that we can firstly still operate, but just keep our style concierges in business, keep our brands making sales? Um, and what we came to, came to realize really is that I don't want to call it an opportunity, but customers were again this is early in the journey they were starting to get scared and they were going to stores less. And there were customers who were still facing the problems that we've, we've spoken about, but also customers who love going to stores who weren't. And we thought, actually, is there a way that we can make the service really safe and maybe just kind of wind back some of the services that we offered? 
Um, so whereas the service pre-pandemic was a little bit more intimate than it is today, you know, a lot of it was through the door. A lot of it was about styling and second opinion and things like that. Um, what we changed it to through the pandemic was just a purely to the door service. So you as a customer could say, actually, I still want to try these pieces on. You know, I don't want to lay out all this money on my card. Um, I want to try multiple sizes, multiple styles um, and have them at this time. So we made it just purely a to the door service. And the strange thing was, once we introduced that, again, it took away some of the valuable parts of the service, but the still core value proposition about being hyper convenient and not dealing with the hassle of returns, like who wants to go to the post office at that time? Couldn't think of anything worse. Um, it really started to even just accelerate during the pandemic, which was something we went from a position of saying, actually, this might go to zero to actually it started to accelerate. Um, that really, really helped. And then during the pandemic and post pandemic, we've actually had, you know, we now talk about it as to the door or through the door. You know, it's up to you as a consumer whether you want the person in the home and you want that second opinion, you want that advice, or if you just want a hands-off service and to shop privately. Um, and now post-pandemic, it's actually about 50-50. So that very valuable product service we introduced um, has remained and has stayed very strong. Yeah, I really like that concept of to the door um, and through the door. It's, it's very easy to kind of break down your services and your value proposition um, along that customer journey. Which one did you choose out of interest, actually? I don't think we asked. I did to the door um, uh, because I I didn't need so much the consultation on in in house really. I think we talked a little bit about this. Like what I really was solving for my pain was being able to get you know the items, try on the right size, uh, keep the ones that I wanted, and then send back the ones that I didn't. And because the process for going to the post office where I live and with my job. Um, is not something that's as easy. It sounds easy, right? But it actually isn't because it's not open all the time. So you have to make sure that you go at the times that it's open. You have to go back during those times. Um, for me, it was just so nice to have someone bring me the two sizes that I wanted of each item. Let me try them on quickly, um, give back the things that I didn't want. And they just took them and went on their way. And I didn't have to worry about repackaging everything, you know, taping it up, getting to the post office during their open hours that often conflict with my my work schedule um, exactly so, yeah so it was super to me it was um I, I think I told you when we were talking like it reminded me a lot of my favorite aspects of um uh what is it rent the runway in the United States who will send you know it's different model because it's rental but they'll send you you know a few items to try on see which one uh, is going to fit you best you keep that one rent that one return the other one um again with no like massive charge so that it's that hyper convenience problem that you're talking about that I think really appealed to me, certainly. Yeah, it's shopping on your terms, isn't it? Like the post office near me is exactly the same. It's it's open nine to five in weekdays. So again, what happened is I end up waiting for weeks to find a good time to take it. And again, that's bad for the retailer. So it's not just great for the customers, it's great for the retailer getting that product back on sale as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, which actually is something nice that would be good. So like, let's take a step back because I think in the early days before, even before that meeting in Mayfair and realizing that, wow, this pandemic is going to give us uh, a chance to reimagine some of these things, um, you guys started as a marketplace and it was actually learning about the, the value add that you could add for merchants and retailers that really helped drive some of your changes, right? So what what was that process like? Yeah, that was... We, we pivoted effectively, and that was the thing that really changed the business. Um, but we started as a marketplace more than anything because we had the idea for the service. And then we thought, how can we bring this to market? And, you know, we've touched on my background. You can imagine me in the early days trying to sell to some of the brands that we've mentioned. 
as this person who's young in their career, has never worked in the industry, trying to tell them that there's a better way to sell their clothes. <laughs> you can imagine how some of those conversations went. Um, so we, we thought, actually, maybe if we have it as a marketplace and we can just say to brands, actually, we will get the customers um, and we'll provide the service if you can just put the products onto the site. And we were doing that for around a year. And we just that's where we really realized the commercial benefit of the service. You know, it was an incredible customer experience, but by removing the barriers to shopping, which is what we were trying to do, you know, customers became better customers, really. Um, it made it easier for customer acquisition. So if you've never shopped a brand before, you know, shopping that brand for the first time online is a real challenge. So um, it was acquisition and then customers would actually try more on, you know, think about a fitting room and how you shop in store, how many products you engage with compared to online where you might try one or two, the average UPT online is 1.3 items. Think of a fitting room, it's probably more like five or six, which is actually more like the Harper basket. Um, so we started to see customers becoming better customers, purchasing more, purchasing more frequently, becoming more loyal. Um, and that's when we thought actually this could be, there is a B2B proposition here. Maybe that's a way to get it to more customers because that was always our aim. Um, so we pivoted to become B2B to C. And by that point we had a bit of traction we could speak to the brands. They were still, we launched with, you know, smaller luxury brands, um, but there was at least evidence of the service working. They could try it. They could touch and feel it themselves. And then once we did that, it just completely changed the business. And that's the format that we're in today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think, I mean, one of the things you and I spoke about too was, you know, coming from, you know, a background in transportation as an engineer, like it would have been really difficult for you to walk into Dior or Selfridges and like talk to them about their pain and their problem. Um, but because you were able to build up, and this is often the dual-sided marketplace, but, you know, you see like you were able, able to start to prove volume in the marketplace. Uh, you were able to then have something tangible to take to those retailers. Can you tell us a little bit about how you um, learn to effectively to sell to them and understand what they need and how to shape your product to not only serve the consumer, um, but also serve the merchants? I'd say... I was going to say in the early days, but I think it stayed true. It was always talking to them as a consumer. So everybody, again, you're speaking to these people and that everybody's on the same page. They are online shoppers themselves. They are shoppers themselves. So they can relate to the problems that we were trying to solve for. Um, so that was one of the, I think, best ways, just bringing it back to the consumer experience. The thing that really helped as we started working with the bigger retailers was, was case studies. You know, they do, they obviously want the customer experience and everybody wants better customer experience but then you have to show the business case. So starting to be able to show real business cases, real examples of this working, like a lot of our business today has come from people at the brands, senior people, um, you know, actually trying the service as customers through other brands and then thinking this was incredible. Um, I need this for my brand and then reaching out to us. So it's, it's become a lot more organic, I would say um, in the last few years. It's interesting. We've had a few um, people on from different B2B2C companies, and that is very much the trend that I hear, which is that their success has come from over, uh, identifying that they can monetize both sides. But actually, when it comes to the business side, talking to the business about the consumer and the consumer pain. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think that's interesting that you bring that up again. Uh, we've heard it at least I can think one other time on our podcast, having another B2B2C company in. Yeah, it really helps. And the thing with our customers as well, we're obviously, they are the brand's customers, but we're serving them on their behalf. Um, but we are speaking directly to them and they will tell us we get tons and tons of requests for brands. So we can go to brands and say, 
100 customers have requested your brand through this service, through other brands that are using it at the moment, would you be interested to try it? Um, and that's quite a compelling proposition when you know that there's, you know, there's tens of thousands of customers using it regularly already. And when you turn it on, you should be able to get quite an instant impact. Absolutely. Yeah. And on the flip side, I mean, I think I, one of the things I remembered when I first used it is, oh gosh, I wish I knew like had a list or an app where I could only buy things that have this service because it's so, I mean, it's so beneficial for me as a customer. Um, I like it so much. It makes it so frictionless. So yeah, absolutely. Um, well, okay. So now, uh, obviously, you guys are growing. Um, we talked about kind of you forex on some of your key metrics. Uh, what would you say is next from a growth perspective? Yeah, uh, the thing is just trying to maintain the trajectory. Now, the base we've grown three to five x in the last three years, and the base volume is getting higher now. So we're thinking of the next phase. How can we maintain that growth off of a higher base volume? And the big thing for us is that we've, we've got all of this growth when you think about it. We're only operational in Greater London at the moment. So we're getting really good growth and really good traction in that in that just relatively small area. Um, so it's actually good for investors when they see it really working in one geography. And then you can say, actually, we want to expand this to new geographies next. We're also getting a lot of demand for our partners. You know, it's really working there. They're saying, can you serve us in new geographies? So the big headline, I would say, is, is new geographies. It's, it's easy expansion. It's serving our partners better. Um, but continuing with new partnerships as well, there's there's still so many brands that it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent now, but there's still so many brands um, that we want to onboard in the next couple of years. So I'd say new partnerships, um, new geographies. And the other thing that we haven't really invested in at all at the moment, which is a big opportunity, is awareness. Um, so making customers a lot more aware of the service. Like, again, I don't want to use the same example because it's a very, very different service to something like a Klarna. But you think about however heavily they invested into brand awareness. Um, to kind of build that brand and make customers aware of the service being available and just inventing that category. Um, so I think that's a big opportunity we want to start exploring next year too. Absolutely. So when, if you had someone listening today who was interested from a partnerships perspective, a brand who wanted to uh, get in touch with Harper, what would be the best thing for them to do? I would say email me. So yeah, <laughs> email me at liam at harperconcierge.com and I will okay. forward you on to the right people. Hey, that's nice that we rarely get a personal uh, or a business email sent out on the podcast. So that's great. That's great to know. Uh, and then, I mean, what about for people who maybe aren't in the greater London area, but they're interested in additional markets? Do you have ideas about where you guys might expand to next or is that still being determined? Uh, we know the next one for sure. So we've spent quite a bit of time in New York this year. And that's something we're going to launch next year. Um it's really the obvious ones. So we've been working with our partners to say, what are the top five cities in terms of volume? For us, it's just moving to a city um, that we know we can turn on and start serving customers for, which is a nice part of the business as well. You have some of these services where you have to go over to a market and really develop it. Um, whereas, you know, you have to market, you have to acquire customers. It takes a while to build it up. For us, we can quite accurately say, actually, if we launch this market today, um, we can model the take up because there are existing partners. And this is the volume that we'll do. So New York, we're launching next year. Um, and then it is the Paris's and the Milan's and the LA's that will come after that. Um, the order to be agreed with our partners. All the fashionista markets. That makes yes. sense. Where All right. the volume of those customers in good density is the important thing. Absolutely. So, you know, thinking a little bit about you had mentioned how um, you had that kind of fateful discussion with an early investor and they added a lot of value by being transparent with you about their concerns. 
Um, and, and actually, one of the things, I don't think you said it today on in the interview, but when we were prepping, you said that actually later he came back and said that, you know, he had been the most worried about you and his portfolio, but you guys actually had come through the strongest, um, which is major kudos to Harper and to, to you, Liam, and the team that you've built. Like, what advice would you give to people who maybe are fundraising now um, or they're interested in founding a company uh, as it relates to investors? What did you learn through the investor and growth process that you could share? Yeah, good question. Um, I'd say try and get people like that, the person I mentioned around you as quickly as possible. You know, it's not, it's easier said than done. So I, when I started this, I was, like I said, I was new to London. I had zero network in the industry. I, had, I knew nobody who'd started a startup. Um, but that network building and just meeting people, again, I think people think of building a network as in a negative way sometimes, but it's it's not really about that. It's so valuable, but it's about meeting people, um, you know, just talking and trying to meet as many people as you can. Um, the biggest tool for me was LinkedIn, to be honest. I don't think Harper would be here without LinkedIn. It's incredible that you can kind of message C-suite of a brand or an incredible investor that you want to meet. And they're not going to reply every time. But if you send enough messages, you're going to have enough conversations. So I'd say that's a great door opener. But then you've got to build the relationship. You've got to meet them in person. Um, I really think in-person meeting, especially with investors, is just so important and building that trust. Um, I really felt that through the pandemic. Like not being able to meet investors face-to-face, you know, over lunch. Again, the, you have 30 minutes and it's all pitching. Like you don't want it to be like that, really. You want to be talking about the business. You want to be talking about their interest, interest learning about them, them learning about you. Um, a great example of how I think important that is actually one of our investors, John Ayton. So founder of Links of London, founder of Anushka now. Um, he was our mentor through Walpole Brands of Tomorrow, which we were nominated for. Um, and he was mentoring me for maybe a year. And we were having half an hour calls every month. And we, we built a good rapport. Um, and he was incredibly valuable. But um, when I came to fundraise, I was thinking in my head, you know, John would be an incredible investor to have on board. I didn't want to ruin our relationship and kind of ask him outright. Um, but, you know, I kind of he knew we were fundraising. Um, when, but this was all through the pandemic. So it was all on, on, the, on the phone or on the computer. Again, all crackly. He was abroad sometimes and things like that. Um, we went to meet and have lunch. I think this was around December time when we were allowed out of lockdown again um, of last year. We had lunch for about three hours. And we were just talking about life, about business. We both just got incredibly excited about Harper and about the future potential of it. And over dinner, he offered to invest effectively. Um, so that you know, time you spend doing things like that is, is invaluable. I don't think I've ever raised money from somebody who I've not met in person. So definitely invest in building those relationships. Great advice. Um, I, I have a question and we didn't prep for this, but um, let's see if you're able to answer it. What's the name Harper? What does it mean? What's the, what's the background on that? Oh, I need to come up with a better story for that. <laughs> we, um, so to take you back to what we used to be called, if we ever signed a contract together, you would see your fitting room trading as Harper. So your fitting room was, um, this is why you don't let engineers come up with the name of the company. <laughs> it's very explicit. Um, but yeah, when we started working with more premium brands, when we became B2B2C and we became, you know, our brand would be on other people's sites. We just spent time as a team. Really, if you've ever watched Silicon Valley, <laughs> the show, um, so much of that resonates when you're founding a company, but we were all around a table just, or a whiteboard, just brainstorming names. And the ones that resonated, we were again shortlisting, just testing them a little bit, but it was really the, the Harper name that really just stood out to us as soon as we thought of it. Um, I think it had the right, the right feel. 
It actually looked great on vehicles. It looked great on websites. You could use it for menswear. You could use it for women's wear. It sounded nice. It sounded friendly. It sounded approachable. Um, and yeah, I think it was a really good decision. Actually, we love we love the branding and the name now. That's great to hear. Uh, and it does. It's a very ubiquitous name. Uh, it's interesting you saying, you know, it sounds good for everyone. It kind of appeals to everyone. How do you think about your target users? I mean, do you have a clear kind of persona in terms of, you know, what that that person looks like, what their lifestyle is like? Uh, how does that influence your product decisions, if at all? Yeah, good question. I mean, we've tried to narrow it down. And the, the challenging thing we have is that because we're B2B2C, we are working with these different customer groups. And it's trying to find the common threads throughout the customer groups. And it's really broad as well. Like you think about Harper, it's that the problem is it's solving, like you said, the ubiquitous problems. Like if somebody hates dealing with returns, if somebody wants to try clothes on, you know, if somebody struggles with sizing, like we interviewed customers at the start of this year and 82% of customers named sizing and fit the biggest challenge to shopping online. And like that's something we solve for. So it's a very common problem. Um, so you'll see customers shopping through Harper and they can be 18 years old. They can be up to 90 years old. You know, one of our best customers is this 85-year-old lady. And it's actually the perfect service for her because she we interviewed her because she was she was shopping very frequently through Harper. And we found that actually she she used to love shopping in store. She can no longer make it into store and she's not savvy, tech savvy enough to be able to shop online. So she basically gets the brand's brochure sent through um, every month by their customer service team, and she will call their customer service and book a Harper appointment once a month. <laughs> And it's just, you know, it could be the highlight of her month. She absolutely loves the service. It's the blend of in-store and online that she really loves for it. Um, but the point I'm making is I think it's very, very broad, actually. It's just if you face those problems, the service can work very well for you. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when I was looking at the different brands that you guys have um, inked partnerships with, while there is definitely a common thread and that they tend to be luxury, there's a lot of diversity in terms of the designers and uh, the, what I would imagine is the target persona. Um, so it does really seem to be a very scalable solution that you, you've hit on here. Yeah, if you're thinking about the retailer persona, the way that I would describe that is it works very well for product that needs to be tried on. So that can be need to be tried on because it's, it's a sizing challenge, it's clothing, um, premium product as well. I think if the product was at a certain price point, commercially, I don't think the service would work. Um, but at the same time, maybe you need to try that on less than like something that's, you know, it feels like it's a bit of a stretch or you want to kind of try it on before you actually transact with the cash. Um, so product that needs to be tried on is where the service works very, very well. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Liam, we've gotten to that part in the show where I'm going to ask you my favorite question that I ask for everyone, um, which is, if there is a museum that was dedicated to the world's most important products, um, and it doesn't have to be the most successful, it's just the most important, what product do you think should be in the museum and why? The most important. So for me, is, is a book a product? Because <laughs> that's one of the things that's had the biggest impact on my life. Um, you know, starting this and not having that knowledge or knowing people at the time that have started the businesses, being able to buy a book like something like the hard thing about hard things or good to great and just read about people's experiences. Founding a startup was just been invaluable for me. And, you know, that must, that use case must be helped millions of people, billions of people, probably the different types of uses. I think the book is, is incredible thing to just be able to access. Um, probably get this one all the time, but I think the mobile phone, it's, it's obviously got its downsides, but I think just, you know, the amount that you can do on it nowadays 
thinking about the style concierge role, you know, a lot of that role is done on the phone, like being able to kind of connect to our systems, kind of process orders. Um, it's all done really through a phone. And like, you know, that job probably would have struggled to exist 20 years ago without it. So it just opened up so many possibilities. Um, so the book and the phone, if I can choose to. Well, for someone who likes to solve problems and learn, uh, those are not surprising products that you would put forward. Um, and with that, I just want to say thank you, Liam, for coming on and sharing uh, a bit about your journey and Harper's. And we'll be excited to see the, the brand and the service continue to grow. Thank you very much. Great to catch up. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart, of product.